we act to transform where we are into where we would like to be. When our attempts to transform the present work as planned, we remain firmly positioned in the domain of the known, metaphorically speaking. When our behaviors produce results that we did not want, however, that is, when we err, we move into the domain of the unknown, where more primordial emotional forces rule. Small-scale errors force us to reconstruct our plans, but allow us to retain our goals and our conceptualizations of present conditions. Catastrophic errors, by contrast, force us not only to reevaluate our means, but our starting points and our ends. Such revaluation necessarily involves extreme emotional dysregulation. The domain of the known and the domain of the unknown can reasonably be regarded as permanent constituent elements of human experience, even of the human environment. Regardless of culture, place, and time, human individuals are forced to adapt to the fact of culture, the domain of the known, roughly speaking, and the fact of its ultimate insufficiency, as the domain of the unknown necessarily remains extant, regardless of extent of previous adaptation. The human brain and the higher animal brain appears therefore to have adapted itself to the eternal presence of these two places. The brain has one mode of operation when in explored territory and another when in unexplored territory. In the unexplored world, caution expressed in fear and behavioral immobility initially predominates, but may be superseded by curiosity expressed in hope excitement, and above all, in creative exploratory behavior. Creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or update of patterns of behavior and representation, such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial, or at least something irrelevant. The presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent constituent element of human experience, in addition to the domain of the known and unknown. Mythological representations of the world, which are representations of reality as a forum for action, portray the dynamic interrelationship between all three constituent elements of human experience the eternal unknown, nature, metaphorically speaking, creative and destructive, source and destination of all determinant things, is generally ascribed an affectively ambivalent feminine character as the mother and eventual devourer of everyone and everything. The eternal known, in contrast, culture, defined territory, tyrannical and protective, predictable disciplined and restrictive, cumulative consequence of heroic or exploratory behavior is typically considered masculine in contradistinction to Mother Nature. The eternal knower, finally, the process that mediates between the known and the unknown, is the knight who slays the dragon of chaos, the hero who replaces disorder and confusion with clarity and certainty, the sun god who eternally slays the forces of darkness, and the word that engenders cosmic creation. Normal and Revolutionary Life Two Prosaic Stories
We tell ourselves stories about who we are, where we would like to be, and how we are going to get there. These stories regulate our emotions by determining the significance of all the things we encounter and all the events we experience. We regard things that get us on our way as positive, things that impede our progress as negative, and things that do neither as irrelevant. Most things are irrelevant, and that is a good thing, as we have limited attentional resources. Inconveniences interfere with our plans. We do not like inconveniences and will avoid dealing with them. Nonetheless, they occur commonly. So commonly, in fact, that they might be regarded as an integral, predictable, and constant feature of the human environment. We have adapted to this feature, have the intrinsic resources to cope with inconveniences. We benefit, become stronger in doing so. Ignored inconveniences accumulate rather than disappear, and when they accumulate in sufficient numbers, they produce a catastrophe. A self-induced catastrophe, to be sure, but one that may be indistinguishable from an act of God. Inconveniences interfere with the integrity of our plans, so we tend to pretend that they are not there. Catastrophes, by contrast, interfere with the integrity of our whole stories and massively dysregulate our emotions. By their nature, they are harder to ignore, although that does not stop us from trying to do so. Inconveniences are common. Unfortunately, so are catastrophes, self-induced and otherwise. We are adapted to catastrophes, like inconveniences, as constant environmental features. We can resolve catastrophe, just as we can cope with inconvenience, although at higher cost. As a consequence of this adaptation, this capacity for resolution, catastrophe can rejuvenate. It can also destroy. The more ignored inconveniences in a given catastrophe, the more likely it will destroy. Enough has been learned in the last half-century of inquiry into intellectual and emotional function to enable the development of a provisional general theory of emotional regulation. Description of the role that reaction to novelty or anomaly plays in human information processing is clearly central to such a theory. A compelling body of evidence suggests that our affective, cognitive, and behavioral responses to the unknown or unpredictable are hardwired suggest that these responses constitute inborn structural elements of the processes of consciousness itself. We attend, involuntarily, to those things that occur contrary to our predictions, that occur despite our desires as expressed in expectation. That involuntary attention comprises a large part of what we refer to when we say consciousness. Our initial attention constitutes the first step in the process by which we come to adjust our behavior and our interpretive schemas to the world of experience, assuming that we do so, constitutes as well the first step we take when we modify the world to make it what we desire instead of what it is currently. Modern investigation into the role of novelty in emotion and thought began with the Russians, E.N. Sokolov, O. Vinogradova, A.R. Luria, and, more recently, E. Goldberg, who adopted an approach to human function that is in many ways unique. Their tradition apparently stems from Pavlov, 
who viewed the reflex arc as a phenomenon of central importance and from the Marxist intellectual legacy, which regarded work, creative action, as the defining feature of man. Whatever the specific historical precedents, it is most definitely the case that the Russians have regarded motor output and its abstract equivalence as the critically relevant aspect of human existence. This intellectual position distinguished them historically from their Western counterparts, who tended to view the brain as an information processing machine akin to the computer. Psychologists in the West have concentrated their energies on determining how the brain determines what is out there, so to speak, from the objective viewpoint. The Russians, by contrast, have devoted themselves to the role of the brain in governing behavior and in generating the affects or emotions associated with that behavior. Modern animal experimentalists, most notably Jeffrey Gray, have adopted the Russian line with striking success. We now know, at least in broad outline, how we respond to those annoying, irritating, frightening, promising things that we do not expect. The pioneering Russian psychophysiologist E.N. Sokolov began work on the reflex basis of attention in the 1950s. By the early 60s, this work had advanced to the point where he could formulate the following key propositions. First, one possible approach to analyzing the process of reflection is to consider the nervous system as a mechanism which models the external world by specific changes that occur in its internal structure. In this sense, a distinct set of changes in the nervous system is isomorphic with the external agent that it reflects and resembles. As an internal model that develops in the nervous system in response to the effect of agents in the environment, the image performs the vital function of modifying the nature of behavior, allowing the organism to predict events and actively adjust to its environment. And, second, my first encounter with phenomena which indicated that the higher divisions of the central nervous system form models of external agents involved the study of reactions to novel stimulus features. I characterized these reactions as orienting reflexes. The peculiar feature of the orienting reflex is that after several applications of the same stimulus, generally 5 to 15, the response disappears, or, as the general expression goes, is extinguished. However, the slightest possible change in the stimulus is sufficient to awaken the response. Research on the orienting reflex indicates that it does not occur as a direct result of incoming excitation. Rather, it is produced by signals of discrepancy, which develop when afferent, that is, incoming, signals are compared with the trace formed in the nervous system by an earlier signal. Sokolov was concerned primarily with the modeling of events in the objective external world, assuming, essentially, that when we model, we model facts. Most of the scholars who have followed his lead have adopted this central assumption, at least implicitly. This position requires some modification, we do model facts, but we concern ourselves with valence or value. It is therefore the case that our maps of the world 
contain what might be regarded as two distinct types of information, sensory and affective. It is not enough to know that something is. It is equally necessary to know what it signifies. It might even be argued that animals and human beings are primarily concerned with the affective or emotional significance of the environment. Along with our animal cousins, we devote ourselves to fundamentals. Will this new thing eat me? Can I eat it? Will it chase me? Should I chase it? Can I mate with it? We may construct models of objective reality, and it is no doubt useful to do so. We must model meanings, however, in order to survive. Our most fundamental maps of meaning, maps which have a narrative structure, portray the motivational value of our current state, conceived of in contrast to a hypothetical ideal, accompanied by plans of action, which are our pragmatic notions about how to get what we want. Description of these three elements, current state, ideal future state, and means of active mediation, constitute the necessary and sufficient preconditions for the weaving of the most simple narrative which is a means for describing the valence of a given environment in reference to a temporally and spatially bounded set of action patterns. Getting to point B presupposes that you are at point A. You can't plan movement in the absence of an initial position. The fact that point B constitutes the end goal means that it is valenced more highly than point A that it is a place more desirable when considered against the necessary contrast of the current position. It is the perceived improvement of point B that makes the whole map meaningful or affect-laden. It is the capacity to construct hypothetical or abstract endpoints such as B and to contrast them against the present that makes human beings capable of using their cognitive systems to modulate their affective reactions. The domain mapped by a functional narrative, one that, when enacted, produces the results desired, might reasonably be regarded as explored territory, as events that occur there are predictable. Any place where enacted plans produce unexpected, threatening, or punishing consequences, by contrast, might be regarded as unexplored territory. What happens there does not conform to our wishes. This means that a familiar place where unpredictable things start happening is no longer familiar, even though it might be the same place with regards to its strict spatial location from the objective perspective. We know how to act in some places and not in others. The plans we put into action sometimes work and sometimes do not work. The experiential domains we inhabit, our environments, so to speak, are therefore permanently characterized by the fact of the predictable and controllable in juxtaposition with the unpredictable and uncontrollable. The universe is composed of order and chaos, at least from the metaphorical perspective. Oddly enough, however, it is to this metaphorical universe that our nervous system appears to have adapted. 
what Sokolov discovered, to put it bluntly, is that human beings and other animals far down the phylogenetic chain are characterized by an innate response to what they cannot predict, do not want, and cannot understand. Sokolov identified the central characteristics of how we respond to the unknown, to the strange category of all events that have not yet been categorized. The notion that we respond in an instinctively patterned manner to the appearance of the unknown has profound implications. These can best be first encountered in narrative form. Normal life. If problems are accepted and dealt with before they arise, they might even be prevented before confusion begins. In this way, peace may be maintained. Lao Tzu You work in an office. You are climbing the corporate ladder. Your daily activity reflects this superordinate goal. You are constantly immersed in one activity or another designed to produce an elevation in your status from the perspective of the corporate hierarchy. Today, you have to attend a meeting that may prove vitally important to your future. You have an image in your head, so to speak, about the nature of that meeting and the interactions that will characterize it. You imagine what you would like to accomplish. Your image of this potential future is a fantasy, but it is based, insofar as you are honest, on all the relevant information derived from past experience that you have at your disposal. You have attended many meetings. You know what is likely to happen during any given meeting within reasonable bounds. You know how you will behave and what effect your behavior will have on others. Your model of the desired future is clearly predicated on what you currently know. You also have a model of the present, constantly operative. You understand your somewhat subordinate position within the corporation, which is your importance relative to others above and below you in the hierarchy. You understand the significance of those experiences that occur regularly while you are doing your job. You know who you can give orders to, who you have to listen to, who is doing a good job, who can safely be ignored, and so on. You are always comparing this present unsatisfactory condition to that of your ideal, which is you, increasingly respected, powerful, rich and happy, free of anxiety and suffering, climbing toward your ultimate success. You are unceasingly involved in attempts to transform the present as you currently understand it into the future as you hope it will be. Your actions are designed to produce your ideal designed to transform the present into something ever more closely resembling what you want. You are confident in your model of reality, in your story. When you put it into action, you get results. You prepare yourself mentally for your meeting. You envision yourself playing a centrally important role, resolutely determining the direction the meeting will take, producing a powerful impact on your co-workers. You're in your office, preparing to leave. The meeting is taking place in another building, several blocks away. You formulate provisional plans of behavior designed to get you there on time. You estimate travel time at 15 minutes. You leave your office on the 27th floor, and you wait by the elevator. The minutes tick by. More and more of them. The elevator fails to appear. 
you had not taken this possibility into account. The longer you wait, the more nervous you get. Your heart rate starts increasing as you prepare for action. Action, unspecified, as of yet. Your palms sweat. You flush. You berate yourself for failing to consider the potential impact of such a delay. Maybe you are not as smart as you think you are. You begin to revise your model of yourself. No time for that now. You put such ideas out of your head and concentrate on the task at hand. The unexpected has just become manifest in the form of the missing elevator. You planned to take it to get to where you were going. It did not appear. Your original plan of action is not producing the effects desired. It was, by your own definition, a bad plan. You need another one, and quickly. Luckily, you have an alternate strategy at your disposal. The stairs. You dash to the rear of the building. You try the door to the stairwell. It is locked. You curse the maintenance staff. You are frustrated and anxious. The unknown has emerged once again. You try another exit. Success! The door opens. Hope springs forth from your breast. You still might make it on time. You rush down the stairs, all 27 floors, and onto the street. You are, by now, desperately late. As you hurry along, you monitor your surroundings. Is progress toward your goal continuing? Anyone who gets in your way inconveniences you. Elderly women, playful, happy children, lovers out for a stroll. You are a good person under most circumstances, at least in your own estimation. Why then do these innocent people aggravate you so thoroughly? You near a busy intersection. The crosswalk light is off. You fume and mutter away stupidly on the sidewalk. Your blood pressure rises. The light finally changes. You smile and dash forward. Up a slight rise, you run. You are not in great physical shape. Where did all this energy come from? You are approaching the target building. You glance at your watch. Five minutes left. No problem. A feeling of relief and satisfaction floods you. You are there. In consequence, you are not an idiot. If you believed in God, you would thank him. Had you been early, had you planned appropriately, the other pedestrians and assorted obstacles would not have affected you at all. You might have even appreciated them, at least the good-looking ones, or may at least not have classified them as obstacles. Maybe you would have even used the time to enjoy your surroundings. Unlikely or to think about other issues of real importance, like tomorrow's meeting. You continue on your path. Suddenly you hear a series of loud noises behind you, noises reminiscent of a large motorized vehicle hurtling over a small concrete barrier, much like a curb. You are safe on the sidewalk, or so you presumed a second ago. Your meeting fantasies vanish. The fact that you're late no longer seems relevant. You stop hurrying along instantly, arrested in your path by the emergence of this new phenomenon. Your auditory system localizes the sounds in three dimensions. You involuntarily orient your trunk, neck, head, and eyes toward the place in space from which the sounds apparently emanate. Your pupils dilate and your eyes widen. Your heart rate speeds up as your body prepares to take adaptive action, once the proper path of that action has been specified. 
You actively explore the unexpected occurrence once you have oriented yourself toward it with all the sensory and cognitive resources you can muster. You're generating hypotheses about the potential cause of the noise even before you turn. Has a van jumped the curb? The image flashes through your mind. Has something heavy fallen from a building? Has the wind overturned a billboard or a street sign? Your eyes actively scan the relevant area. You see a truck loaded with bridge parts heading down the street, just past a pothole in the road. The mystery is solved. You have determined the specific motivational significance of what just seconds ago was the dangerous and threatening unknown. And it is zero. A loaded truck hit a bump. Big deal. Your heart slows down. Thoughts of the impending meeting re-enter the theater of your mind. Your original journey continues as if nothing has happened. What is going on? Why are you so frightened and frustrated by the absence of the expected elevator, the presence of the old woman with the cane, the carefree lovers, the loud machinery? Why are you so emotionally and behaviorally variable? Detailed description of the processes governing these common affective occurrences provides the basis for proper understanding of human motivation. What Sokolov and his colleagues essentially discovered was that the unknown, experienced in relationship to your currently extant model of present and future, has a priori motivational significance. Or, to put it somewhat differently, that the unknown could serve as an unconditioned stimulus. What is the a priori motivational significance of the unknown? Can such a question even be asked? After all, the unknown, by definition, has not yet been explored. Nothing can be said by the dictates of standard logic about something that has not yet been encountered. We are not concerned with sensory information, however, nor with particular material attributes, but with valence. Valence, in and of itself, might be most simply considered as bipolar, negative, or positive, or, of course, as neither. We are familiar enough with the ultimate potential range of valence, negative and positive, to place provisional borders around possibility. The worst the unknown could be, in general, is death, or, perhaps, lengthy suffering followed by death. The fact of our vulnerable mortality provides the limiting case. The best the unknown could be is more difficult to specify, but some generalizations might prove acceptable. We would like to be wealthy, or at least free from want, possessed of good health, wise, and well-loved. The greatest good the unknown might confer, then, might be regarded as that which would allow us to transcend our innate limitations— poverty, ignorance, vulnerability, rather than to remain miserably subject to them. The emotional area covered by the unknown is therefore very large, ranging from that which we fear most to that which we desire most intently. The unknown is, of course, defined in contradistinction to the known. Everything not understood or not explored is unknown. The relationship between the oft and unfairly separated domains of cognition and emotion can be more clearly comprehended in light of this rather obvious fact. 
It is the absence of an expected satisfaction, for example, that is punishing, hurtful. The emotion is generated as a default response to sudden and unpredictable alteration in the theoretically comprehended structure of the world. It is the man expecting a raise because of his outstanding work, the man configuring a desired future on the basis of his understanding of the present, who is hurt when someone less deserving is promoted before him. One is best punished, after all, as Nietzsche said, for one's virtues. The man whose expectations have been dashed, who has been threatened and hurt, is likely to work less hard in the future, with more resentment and anger. Conversely, the child who has not completed her homework is thrilled when the bell-signaling class end rings before she is called upon. The bell signals the absence of an expected punishment and therefore induces positive affect, relief, happiness. It appears, therefore, that the image of a goal a fantasy about the nature of the desired future conceived of in relationship to a model of the significance of the present provides much of the framework determining the motivational significance of ongoing current events. The individual uses his or her knowledge to construct a hypothetical state of affairs where the motivational balance of ongoing events is optimized, where there is sufficient satisfaction, minimal punishment, tolerable threat and abundant hope all balanced together properly over the short and longer terms. This optimal state of affairs might be conceptualized as a pattern of career advancement with a long-term state in mind signifying perfection as it might be attained profanely. Richest drug dealer, happily married matron, chief executive officer of a large corporation, tenured Harvard professor. Alternatively, perfection might be regarded as the absence of all unnecessary things and the pleasures of an ascetic life. The point is that some desirable future state of affairs is conceptualized in fantasy and used as a target point for operation in the present. Such operations may be conceived of as links in a chain, with the end of the chain anchored to the desirable future state. A meeting like the one referred to previously, might be viewed by those participating in it as one link in the chain which hypothetically leads to the paradisal state of corporate chief executive officer, or to something less desirable but still good. The well-brought-off meeting, as sub-goal, would therefore have the same motivational significance as the goal, although at lesser intensity as it is only one small part of a large and more important whole. The exemplary meeting will be conceptualized in the ideal, like all target states, as a dynamic situation where, all things considered, motivational state is optimized. The meeting is imagined, a representation of the desired outcome is formulated, and a plan of behavior designed to bring about that outcome is elaborated and played out. The imagined meeting is fantasy, but fantasy based on past knowledge, assuming that knowledge has in fact been generated and that the planner is able and willing to use it. The affective systems that govern response to punishment, satisfaction, threat, and promise all have a stake in attaining the ideal outcome. 
anything that interferes with such attainment, little old ladies with canes, will be experienced as threatening and or punishing. Anything that signifies increased likelihood of success, open stretches of sidewalk, will be experienced as promising or satisfying. It is for this reason that the Buddhists believe that everything is maya or illusion. The motivational significance of ongoing events is clearly determined by the nature of the goal toward which behavior is devoted. That goal is conceptualized in episodic imagery, in fantasy. We constantly compare the world at present to the world idealized in fantasy, render affective judgment, and act in consequence. Trivial promises and satisfactions indicate that we are doing well, are progressing toward our goals. An unexpected opening in the flow of pedestrians appears before us when we are in a hurry. We rush forward, pleased at the occurrence. We get somewhere a little faster than we had planned and feel satisfied with our intelligent planning. Profound promises or satisfactions, by contrast, validate our global conceptualizations, indicate that our emotions are likely to stay regulated on the path we have chosen. Trivial threats or punishments indicate flaws in our means of attaining desired ends. We modify our behavior accordingly and eliminate the threat. When the elevator does not appear at the desired time, we take the stairs. When a stoplight slows us down, we run a bit faster once it shuts off than we might have otherwise. Profound threats and punishments, read, trauma, have a qualitatively different nature. Profound threats or punishments undermine our ability to believe that our conceptualizations of the present are valid and that our goals are appropriate. Such occurrences disturb our belief in our ends and, not infrequently, in our starting points. We construct our idealized world in fantasy according to all the information we have at our disposal. We use what we know to build an image of what we could have and, therefore, of what we should do. But we compare our interpretation of the world as it unfolds in the present to the desired world in imagination, not to mere expectation. We compare what we have in interpretation to what we want rather than to what we merely think will be. Our goal-setting and consequent striving is motivated. We chase what we desire in our constant attempts to optimize our affective states. Of course, we use our behavior to ensure that our dreams come true. That is healthy adaptation. But we still compare what is happening to what we want, to what we desire to be, not merely to what we cold-bloodedly expect. The maps that configure our motivated behavior have a certain comprehensible structure. They contain two fundamental and mutually interdependent poles. One, present. The other, future. The present is sensory experience as it is currently manifested to us, as we currently understand it, granted motivational significance according to our current knowledge and desires. The future is an image or partial image of perfection to which we compare the present insofar as we understand its significance. Wherever there exists a mismatch between the two, the unexpected or novel occurs, by definition, grips our attention, 
and activates the intrapsychic systems that govern fear and hope. We strive to bring novel occurrences back into the realm of predictability or to exploit them for previously unconsidered potential by altering our behavior or our patterns of representation. We conceive of a path connecting present to future. This path is composed of the behaviors required to produce the transformations we desire, required to turn the eternally insufficient present into the ever-receding paradisal future. This path is normally conceived of as linear, so to speak, as something analogous to Thomas Kuhn's notion of normal science, wherein known patterns of behavior operating on an understood present will produce a future whose desirability is an unquestioned given. Anything that interferes with our potential means to a specified end is punishing or threatening in the rather trivial sense described previously. Encounter with punishments or threats of this category merely obliges us to choose an alternative mean from among the number we generally have present. A similar situation obtains for promises and satisfactions. When a means produces the end desired, or furthers progress along that path, we experience satisfaction, and hope as an interim end accomplished also signifies increased likelihood of success farther out in the future. Such satisfaction brings our particular behaviors to an end. We switch goals and continue into the future. Modification of our means, as a consequence of the motivational significance of the outcomes of those means, might be considered normal adaptation. The structure of normal adaptation is schematically portrayed in Figure 3, Normal Life. We posit a goal in image and word, and we compare present conditions to that goal. We evaluate the significance of ongoing events in light of their perceived relationship to the goal. We modify our behavioral outputs, our means, when necessary, to make the attainment of our goal ever more likely. We modify our actions within the game, but accept the rules without question. We move in a linear direction from present to future. Revolutionary Life The revolutionary model of adaptation, again, considered akin to Kuhn's revolutionary science, is more complex. Let us presume that you return from your meeting. You made it on time, and as far as you could tell, everything proceeded according to plan. You notice that your colleagues appeared a little irritated and confused by your behavior as you attempted to control the situation, but you put this down to jealousy on their part to their inability to comprehend the majesty of your conceptualizations. You are satisfied in consequence, satisfied temporarily, so you start thinking about tomorrow as you walk back to work. You return to your office. There's a message on your answering machine. The boss wants to see you. You did not expect this. Your heart rate speeds up a little. Good or bad, this news demands preparation for action. What does she want? Fantasies of potential futures spring up. Maybe she heard about your behavior at the meeting and wants to congratulate you on your excellent work. You walk to her office, apprehensive but hopeful. You knock and stroll in jauntily. The boss looks at you and glances away somewhat unhappily. 
Your sense of apprehension increases. She motions for you to sit, so you do. What is going on? She says, I have some bad news for you. This is not good. This is not what you wanted. Your heart rate is rising unpleasantly. You focus all of your attention on your boss. Look, she says, I have received a number of very unfavorable reports regarding your behavior at meetings. All of your colleagues seem to regard you as a rigid and overbearing negotiator. Furthermore, it has become increasingly evident that you are unable to respond positively to feedback about your shortcomings. Finally, you do not appear to properly understand the purpose of your job or the function of this corporation. You are shocked beyond belief, paralyzed into immobility. Your vision of the future with this company vanishes, replaced by apprehensions of unemployment, social disgrace, and failure. You find it difficult to breathe. You flush and perspire profusely. Your face is a mask of barely suppressed horror. You cannot believe that your boss is such a bitch. You have been with us for five years, she continues, and it is obvious that your performance is not likely to improve. You are definitely not suited for this sort of career, and you are interfering with the progress of the many competent others around you. In consequence, we have decided to terminate your contract with us effective immediately. If I were you, I would take a good look at myself. You have just received unexpected information, but of a different order of magnitude than the petty anomalies, irritations, threats, and frustrations that disturbed your equilibrium in the morning. You have just been presented with incontrovertible evidence that your characterizations of the present and of the ideal future are seriously, perhaps irreparably, flawed. Your presumptions about the nature of the world are in error. The world you know has just crumbled around you. Nothing is what it seemed. Everything is unexpected and new again. You leave the office in shock. In the hallway, other employees avert their gaze from you in embarrassment. Why did you not see this coming? How could you have been so mistaken in your judgment? Maybe everyone is out to get you. Better not think that. You stumble home in a daze and collapse on the couch. You can't move. You're hurt and terrified. You feel like you might go insane. Now what? How will you face people? The comfortable, predictable, rewarding present has vanished. The future has opened up in front of you like a pit, and you have fallen in. For the next month, you find yourself unable to act. Your spirit has been extinguished. You sleep and wake at odd hours. Your appetite is disturbed. You are anxious, hopeless, and aggressive at unpredictable intervals. You snap at your family and torture yourself. Suicidal thoughts enter the theater of your imagination. You do not know what to think or what to do. You are the victim of an internal war of emotion. Your encounter with the terrible unknown has shaken the foundations of your worldview. You have been exposed involuntarily to the unexpected and revolutionary. Chaos has eaten your soul. This means that your long-term goals have to be reconstructed and the motivational significance of events in your current environment re-evaluated, literally revalued. 
This capacity for complete revaluation in the light of new information is even more particularly human than the aforementioned capability for exploration of the unknown and generation of new information. Sometimes, in the course of our actions, we elicit phenomena whose very existence is impossible according to our standard methods of construal, which are at base a mode of attributing motivational significance to events. Exploration of these new phenomena and integration of our findings into our knowledge occasionally means reconceptualization of that knowledge and constant re-exposure to the unknown no longer inhibited by our mode of classification. This means that simple movement from present to future is occasionally interrupted by a complete breakdown and reformulation, a reconstitution of what the present is and what the future should be. The ascent of the individual, so to speak, is punctuated by periods of dissolution and rebirth. The more general model of human adaptation, conceptualized most simply as steady state, breach, crisis, redress, therefore ends up looking like figure four, revolutionary adaptation. The processes of revolutionary adaptation enacted and represented underlie diverse cultural phenomena ranging from the rites of primitive initiation to the conceptions of sophisticated religious systems. Indeed, our very cultures are erected upon the foundation of a single great story. Paradise, encounter with chaos, fall, and redemption. A month after you were fired, a new idea finds its way into your head. Although you never let yourself admit it, you didn't really like your job. You only took it because you felt that it was expected of you. You never put your full effort into it because you really wanted to do something else, something other people thought was risky or foolish. You made a bad decision a long time ago. Maybe you needed this blow to put you back on the path. You start imagining a new future. One where you are not so secure, maybe, but where you are doing what you actually want to do. The possibility of undisturbed sleep returns and you start eating properly again. You're quieter, less arrogant, more accepting, except in your weaker moments. Others make remarks, some admiring, some envious, about the change they perceive in you. You are a man recovering from a long illness, a man reborn. Neuropsychological Function The Nature of the Mind It is reasonable to regard the world as forum for action, as a place a place made up of the familiar and the unfamiliar in eternal juxtaposition. The brain is actually composed in large part of two subsystems adapted for action in that place. The right hemisphere, broadly speaking, responds to novelty with caution and rapid global hypothesis formation. The left hemisphere, by contrast, tends to remain in charge when things that is, explicitly categorized things, are unfolding according to plan. The right hemisphere draws rapid, global, valence-based, metaphorical pictures of novel things. The left, 
with its greater capacity for detail, make such pictures explicit and verbal. Thus, the exploratory capacity of the brain builds the world of the familiar, the known, from the world of the unfamiliar, the unknown. When the world remains known and familiar, that is, when our beliefs maintain their validity, our emotions remain under control. When the world suddenly transforms itself into something new, however, our emotions are dysregulated in keeping with the relative novelty of that transformation, and we are forced to retreat or to explore once again. The Valence of Things Anyone who considers the basic drives of man will find that all of them have done philosophy at some time and that every one of them would like only too well to represent just itself as the ultimate purpose of existence and the legitimate master of all the other drives. For every drive wants to be master, and it attempts to philosophize in that spirit. Friedrich Nietzsche It is true that man was created in order to serve the gods, who first of all needed to be fed and clothed. Mercea Eliada we can make lists of general goods and bads, which might appear reasonable to others, because we tend to make judgments of meaning in relatively standard and predictable ways. Food, to take a simple example, is good, assuming it is palatably prepared, while a blow on the head is bad in direct proportion to its force. The list of general goods and bads can be extended with little effort. Water, shelter, warmth, and sexual contact are good. Diseases, droughts, famines, and fights are bad. The essential similarities of our judgments of meaning can easily lead us to conclude that the goodness or badness of things or situations is something more or less fixed. However, the fact of subjective interpretation and its effects on evaluation and behavior complicate this simple picture. We will work, expend energy, and overcome obstacles to gain a good or to avoid something bad. But we won't work for food, at least not very hard, if we have enough food. We won't work for sex if we're satisfied with our present levels of sexual activity, and we might be very pleased to go hungry if that means our enemy will starve. Our predictions, expectations, and desires condition our evaluations to a finally unspecifiable degree. Things have no absolutely fixed significance, despite our ability to generalize about their value. It is our personal preferences, therefore, that determine the import of the world. But these preferences have constraints. The meaning we attribute to objects or situations is not stable. What is important to one man is not necessarily important to another. Likewise, the needs and desires of the child differ from those of the adult. The meaning of things depends to a profound and ultimately undeterminable degree upon the relationship of those things to the goal we currently have in mind. Meaning shifts when goals change. Such change necessarily transforms the contingent expectations and desires that accompany those goals. We experience things personally and idiosyncratically, despite broad interpersonal agreement about the value of things. The goals we pursue singly, the outcomes we expect and desire as individuals, determine the meaning of our experience. 
The existential psychotherapist Viktor Frankl relates a story from his experiences as a Nazi death camp inmate that makes this point most strikingly. Take as an example something that happened on our journey from Auschwitz to the camp affiliated with Dachau. We became more and more tense as we approached a certain bridge over the Danube, which the train would have to cross to reach Mauthausen, according to the statement of experienced traveling companions. Those who have never seen anything similar cannot possibly imagine the dance of joy performed in the carriage by the prisoners when they saw that our transport was not crossing the bridge and was instead heading only for Dachau. And again, what happened on our arrival in that camp after a journey lasting two days and three nights? There had not been enough room for everybody to crouch on the floor of the carriage at the same time. The majority of us had to stand all the way, while a few took turns at squatting on the scanty straw which was soaked with human urine. When we arrived, the first important news that we heard from older prisoners was that this comparatively small camp, its population was 2,500, had no oven, no crematorium, no gas. That meant that a person who had become a, quote, Muslim, no longer fit for work, could not be taken straight to the gas chamber, but would have to wait until a so-called sick convoy had been arranged to return to Auschwitz. This joyful surprise put us all in a good mood. The wish of the senior warden of our hut in Auschwitz had come true. We had come as quickly as possible to a camp which did not have a chimney, unlike Auschwitz. We laughed and cracked jokes in spite of and during all we had to go through in the next few hours. When we new arrivals were counted, one of us was missing. So we had to wait outside in the rain and cold wind until the missing man was found. He was at last discovered in a hut where he had fallen asleep from exhaustion. Then the roll call was turned into a punishment parade. All through the night and late into the next morning, we had to stand outside, frozen and soaked to the skin after the strain of our long journey. And yet we were all very pleased. There was no chimney in this camp, and Auschwitz was a long way off. Nothing produces terror and fear like a concentration camp, unless the camp encountered is better than the camp expected. Our hopes, desires, and wishes, which are always conditional, define the context within which the things and situations we encounter take on determinate significance define even the context within which we understand thing or situation. We presume that things have a more or less fixed meaning because we share a more or less fixed condition with others, at least with those others who are familiar to us, who share our presumptions and worldviews. Those culturally determined things we take for granted, and which are therefore invisible, determine our affective responses to environmental stimuli. We assume that such things are permanent attributes of the world, but they are not. Our situations, and therefore our context of interpretation, can change dramatically at any moment. We are indeed fortunate, and generally oblivious of that fortune, when they do not. 
It is not possible to finally determine how or whether something is meaningful by observing the objective features of that thing. Value is not invariant in contrast to objective reality. Furthermore, it is not possible to derive an ought from an is. This is the naturalistic fallacy of David Hume. It is possible, however, to determine the conditional meaning of something by observing how behavior, one's own behavior or someone else's, is conducted in the presence of that thing or in its absence. Things, objects, processes, emerge into subjective experience, at least, as a consequence of behaviors. Let us say, for the sake of example, that behavior A produces phenomenon B. Always remember that we were talking about behavior in a particular context. Behavior A consequently increases in frequency. It can be deduced, then, that phenomenon B is regarded as positive by the agent under observation in the particular context constituting the observed situation. If behavior A decreases in frequency, the opposite conclusion can be reasonably reached. The observed agent regards B as negative. The behavioral psychologist B.F. Skinner originally defined a reinforcer as a stimulus which produced a change in the frequency of a given behavior. He was loath to become concerned with the internal or intrapsychic whys and wherefores of reinforcement, preferring instead to work by definition. If a stimulus increased the rate at which a given behavior was manifested, it was positive. If it decreased the rate of that behavior, it was negative. Of course, Skinner recognized that the valence of a given stimulus was context-dependent. An animal had to be food-deprived, in normal parlance, hungry, before food could serve as a positive reinforcer. As the animal being fed became less food-deprived, the valence and potency of the reinforcer food decreased. Skinner believed that discussions of an animal's or a human's internal state were unnecessary. If you knew an animal's reinforcement history, you could determine what stimuli were likely to have positive or negative valence. The fundamental problem with this argument is one of parsimony. It is impossible to know an animal's reinforcement history, particularly if that animal is as complex and long-lived as a human being. This is tantamount to saying, you must know everything that has ever happened to that animal. Analogous to the old determinist claim that, if you knew the present position and momentum of every particle in the universe, you could determine all future positions and momenta. You can't know all present positions and momenta. The measurement problems are insurmountable, and the uncertainty principle makes it impossible anyway. Likewise, you don't have access to the reinforcement history, and even if you did, measuring it would alter it. I'm not making a formal uncertainty claim for psychology, just drawing what I hope is a useful analogy. Skinner addressed this problem by limiting his concern to experimental situations so simple that only immediate reinforcement history played a context-determining role. This implicit limit enabled him to sidestep the fundamental issue and to make inappropriate generalizations. It didn't matter how a rat related to his mother six months earlier if you could make him food-deprived enough 
The short-term fact of the food deprivation, for example, overrode individual rat differences, at least in the experimental condition under question, and could therefore usefully be ignored. Similarly, if you starve human beings, you can be reasonably sure that they will become concerned with food. However, 